Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. I'm uh, flipping around with the Olympics. I've been watching the Olympics this year, and uh, it is irritating because they sit there, and, and the problem is you go to your computer, and they ruin everything. So let's say you want to watch you know, Usain Bolt or uh, Monica Biles or Phelps, and you, and you don't want to see the results. You think like Yahoo, which is my homepage, which I should change because of this. You think if I go to Yahoo, they would say, click on here to see the results. Maybe say, you know, gymnastic finals. But no, they give the answer of who won and then it ruins it for you because then I got to keep it down from Joanne because we're going to watch it together and she doesn't want to know who won. And I just don't understand why after this whole this whole Olympic thing. And, and, and now when I grew up, the Olympics were different because, you know, we would watch ABC, whatever it was, Channel 6 in Philadelphia, we would watch that, and there wasn't the internet. So you could just, you never knew who won. But you think the internet would change it just so we know that we can go on to a safe place, our internet homepage, and check our email without getting uh, our our results ruined. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a, uh, uh, I can say he's a legendary bassist, uh, he's a great musician. We have Rudy Sarzo. How you doing, Rudy? Hi, Steve. How you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. Uh, no, uh, uh, do you watch the Olympics at all? Do you follow it? I, uh, you know, I, I, I love the, uh, you know, the, the agony and defeat, right? The old commercial we used to watch, you know, stuff like that. I, 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 I mostly I tune in for the for the stories. You know, I root for the underdog, and then for people like like uh, you know Phelps, you know, and you know Simone and all that. So it's yeah, yeah, I do watch it, but then again, you know it. it Win or lose, it has no effect on my life. Exactly. That's the same way with me. It's like you like to see it. And I always like when people like say, oh, she only won a bronze. I'm like, oh, she only came in third of the whole world. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, come on. Yeah. Well, at this point in my life, I usually root for the old guy. Okay. Or for the old girl. <laughs> so now now you personally, you, you, now you were born in Cuba, right? Yes. So, so, so I've been told. Yes. Yeah. Now, 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 when, when did you start? Was was there a lot of music around when you grew up? How did you end up getting into a a, lot, a lifelong profession? And you played for so many great bands. What made you find a love for music? And did you find it at a young age? Uh, you know, it's. I don't know if it's. It probably is the same thing. You know, with most Caribbean countries, you know, we're so. Uh, Afro influence culturally and society. I mean, you know, it's 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 a big part of our of our of our society. You know, the African culture. So what that means is that if you got something that you can beat on, you got music, and you can dance and you can celebrate. So when I was a kid growing up in Cuba, I used to go to sleep every single night. There would be kids older than me around the neighborhood that would gather around. A car, let's say, and back in back in the day, cars were made out of out of metal, you know, right? Metal. <laughs> so they were they were like really loud, and they were just like one would take a hubcap, another one would take like a fender or you know a bumper or whatever, and they start beating on it, and no no chanting, no singing, just like this huge rhythm going on, and that was like the soundtrack for me falling asleep every night. You know, Latin uh, or African rhythm. So, 
Hello? Okay, Steve, sorry about that. Okay, that's fine. So so you grew up with the rhythm. So now now did you yeah. when did you start getting involved in that rhythm? When did you sit there and start saying, I want to do this? Or was it just was it just infusing you, as you said, because you guys heard it every night? Yeah, but I was a kid then, you know, so I really didn't have any instruments, you know. Uh, it was just this the musical influence. And everywhere we went, you know, because my my, my folks never hired a babysitter for my brother Robert or me. They always took us everywhere, wherever they went. And they used to go to a lot of um, like uh, outdoor tropical dance parties called Vervenas. You know, they were like, uh, and they had the certain sound of the of the trumpet echoing in in the night. It was an amazing. I mean, you know, everything sounded just terrific. You know, outdoors, but usually by the beach, you know, or we used to live pretty close to what is called a malecon, which is like a big seawall that surrounds most of Havana, because Havana sits on a bay, Morro Bay. And uh, so, you know, we had the carnivals, you know, with a lot of marching bands, and I don't mean like marching, like John Philip Sousa marches, I'm talking about, you know, congas and carnival music, you know. And so brass instruments were really, really like echo in my head. I mean, the electric guitar didn't really take in until like I moved to the United States. And then, of course, it really actually coincided with, with my family being relocated to New Jersey. Well, and in 1964, we were there. We were in West New York, New Jersey, and we witnessed the, the Beatles for playing on, on Ed Sullivan. And that kind of changed everything for me. See, so many musicians say that, really, because I, I was born in 63, so I didn't see the Beatles. I mean, if I did, I wouldn't remember. But Come on, you were a baby. Of course yeah. you could have. It had a major impact on everybody, even, even babies. I mean, so many people saw it. So what was it that just sat there when you saw it and you went, holy crap, man, this, this, this is amazing. What, what, took, what, took, what took you over to it? The girls screaming for them. <laughs> That's how I understood. I said, I want that. I want that that adulation, you know. That that's what got me into it. I was a fat little kid, you know, who could not get at the attention of the of the ladies, you know, in elementary school. So I saw that as my ticket. <laughs> so so you just you went out and got a guitar like the next day after the Beatles, or how did that well, happen? Well, it took a while. My my parents, you know, we, we were Cuban uh First of all, you know, we were Cuban refugees. We, 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 we came to the United States just like everybody else came from Cuba at that time in the early 60s. Legally, you had to wait for a sponsor to claim you from, from the U.S., uh, get a passport, get a visa, get everything, and then, you know, get the airline ticket and then land, you know, legally in the United States. And then, and then after that, you ask for political asylum, which is, you know, you become a Cuban refugee. And, uh, so and then later on you you get the green card and so on so so it it it, it actually it, it it took a while for my parents to get some money to order a an old craftsman acoustic guitar from sears catalog okay and i'll never forget the day it arrived because I, I, we had never ordered anything in a box from sears before it was this huge box that came in and and uh, Actually, I, I, I looked at it for the first couple of days before I even had the nerve to, to strike a chord or, you know, just strum it, you know, make some noise. Because it was just like the most magnificent 
piece of art I have ever seen, you know, with this, this beautiful zebra-striped guitar, you know, which is amazing. So you pl start playing it, and you just fall in love with it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I spent most of my formative years not knowing what the hell I was doing, not even how to tune the guitar and everything, but I just loved the, the, the vibration of it. You know, prior to that, I, I had, in school bands, you know, I, uh, I picked up the trumpet that was too loud for the apartment we were living in New Jersey, so my mom used to put, shut me in the closet to practice my <laughs> trumpet. I got videos of that, <laughs> eight millimeter videos. To uh, to prove it, and you know, and you know, it, it's it's all a matter matter of budget. I mean, nowadays, you know, it's pretty affordable, you know, for a child to actually uh, get get their hands on an instrument. You know, there's organizations that make sure that even though there might not be an after school program, that that the kids actually get their hands on instruments. You know, and uh, as a matter of fact, I've, I've done charity work, you know, benefits, you know, for you know, being involved. With, with such organizations. So, uh, but, but back in the day, you know, it was like the beginning. Nobody thought that this rock and roll thing was going to last or anything. So, you know, playing a guitar was not part of the curriculum in school yet, you know. As it became, you know, five years later, it started with jazz bands. People were saying, okay, well, if, if, if the kid is going to play guitar, let's give him an education and have him part of the jazz ensemble. And but that was after I actually graduated from high school, so I did not partake in that. And um, yeah, so that's how I started playing the playing the guitar. Now, how did you end up switching to the bass? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, actually, I we moved from New Jersey back down to Miami, and it, back, back in the day, you know, our social network was hanging out on the block. Right, Each block had you know <laughs> our, our 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 little little neighbors, you know, or clubs. I mean, if you cross the street, you were not part of that club because you didn't live on that street, on that side of the street, you know, so it was pretty much segmented like that. So I went over to the garage that the kids were rehearsing and, and I, I showed up and I go, hi, I'm Rudy and I play guitar. I want to join your band. I said, well, we got too many guitar players. So if you want to join the band, you got to play bass. So it, it didn't it didn't really strike me until like lately, like maybe a year ago, that during an, an interview like this, that I realized that I've been living my life according to somebody else's <laughs> 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 advice of like, yeah, hey, we want to join the gang, uh, pick up the bass, you know, because for the longest time, ever since that moment, every time I picked up a guitar, I it was painful because it, it equaled rejection. Equal the moment that I showed up with a guitar and I was told, no, you can't be a part of this unless you change. Right. You know, so now I play guitar a lot <laughs> just to, to make up. Hello? You there, Steve? Yeah. Yeah, sorry about that. Now, now do you, do you what, looking back, do you ever sit there and think your career... I mean, because you've had such a long, successful career. Do you ever think that that may have not happened if you had never started playing the bass? Uh, no. Okay. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, you know, I, I really love the bass. I just didn't understand what the function of it was, you know, within a band. I mean, I I was trying to pick up notes and, and my, you know, kind of like 
play what Paul McCartney was playing and James Jimerson and all these guys, you know, and then I, I got a formal education on playing bass or, or music theory. Uh, when I when I went to college, that was my secondary uh, major in college, uh, sight reading and, and, and composition and all that. Uh, and, and, and But then what happened was I started playing clubs a lot. So my, my biggest education was actually playing bars every single night while I was still going to college. Now, where'd you, you know, go to college at? Uh, in Miami, Miami-Dade. Okay, so so you were playing the Florida... What kind of music were you guys playing when you would play these uh, gigs? Well, it was top 40, so we would do anything from Paul Anka, you're having my baby, to smoke on the water. You know, whatever was on the radio, we played. You know, so it, it, it which was great, great uh, education, because it was a broad spectrum of musical styles. Not like today. Today is very common that if you want to get a, a gig in a club, you play a tribute band, and so you're basically you're getting one one artist's you know one band's perspective of their musical skills. Whereas if you play top forty, you know it was broad, especially back then. I mean, we would do Johnny Cash, you know, whatever whatever was on the radio. You know, we will play that. It's so funny you say that because I know, remember, we used to go camping and we would drive and hear AM radio, which was, you know, in like 68, 69, there wasn't really FM. I mean, we didn't listen to it in a car, but you're right. You would hear everything from Neil Diamond to something else. And it was just all across the dial. And you, as a kid, you'd like, you know, I mean, my first album was Tom Jones because it was just, you'd hear it on the radio and you go... This is cool music, and you're right. You would hear so many different things on the radio. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and so we had to play that. And it wasn't until like the mid '70s when disco came into Miami, real strong, because of, of the big influence of the uh, of the Snowbirds that would winter from 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 the north. They would winter in Florida, so they brought that with them. You know, the influence of like you know if, if we're going to be going to bars that play disco music either uh, with a DJ or actually with a band. So overnight, uh, we were handed a new set list by the club owner and says, okay, you have to learn these songs or else, or else you can't gig here anymore. And that's when I, that's when I actually, the, the band that I was playing in, we went full disco. Okay. You know, which, which for the bass player was great. Right. I love that. <laughs> but my, my brother was in the band. He was a guitar player, so he got to do a lot of waka waka, you know, on the uh, on the wah wah waka waka waka. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, I was thinking that it'd be great for the bass player. You're right. Yeah, that's so well, it was part of fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so you're you're playing in these cover bands now. How do you how do you gravitate out to L.A.? I know, and you got involved with Quiet Riot and stuff like that. How what was the course to that? Because you're in Florida, you're in Miami, you're playing disco. Where where do you think your music career is going to go? Uh, I had a whole different point of view. I mean, I wanted to make a career, and I wanted to be creative, and I wanted to be involved in the, in the recording uh, industry. And there was no such thing as far as a label goes in Miami. There were plenty of recording studios that a lot of the big-name bands and producers were using, such as Criteria and Bill Zimzik's studio down in, uh, in near Coconut Grove. And... Uh, you know, a lot of the big names were going recording Florida just because it was, you know, they had great studios. Tom Dowd, uh, one of the biggest producers, you know, from that era, you know, he uh, he had a residency down there. 
and uh, he would bring all his bands to record down, you know, like the Bee Gees and so on. That, that's how the Bee Gees wound up in Florida, you know, because of, because of the, uh, the great recording studios down there. So, but there was no label. So I knew that I had to get out of there. If, if I wanted to record, I had to either go, go to New York or go to L.A. So New York was closer. So my brother and I and some of the guys in the band, we packed it up, got put stuff in a U-Haul and put a hitch to, to one of our cars. And we drove up to uh, Utica, New York. And, uh, and then at, around that time, my, my brother got married and he decided to stay in the Jersey area. And I decided to move, keep moving. So went up in Chicago, spent a lot of time in the, in the, uh, in, in, in the Chicago Midwestern market. It was a lot of clubs, especially in Chicago. I mean, you could, you could make a living or survive, you know, playing clubs in Chicago. And then also, you know, the same agent would book you around Michigan and Indiana and, you know, places like Ohio, uh, Iowa, you know, just going, but Wisconsin, you know, just play that circuit. But then again, we were just, a, we, we became a bar band. And we were, you know, we would actually gearing up and using the time to hone our craft at songwriting. But we knew that we had to leave the Midwest and either go to East Coast or West Coast. And so we decided to go to the West Coast with basically the core of that band, which actually included Frankie Benali in there. And uh, we, we wound up in L.A. And when I was in L.A., that's when I met the, uh, the guys from Quiet Riot, you know, Randy Rose and Kevin and Drew Forsythe. Now, now, you know, how, in your eyes, how great of a guitar player was Randy Rose? Because we hear so much great things about him, and we didn't get to sit there and really watch, you know, him hit the full potential. But, like, because you played music for so long, and you've been in music, when you saw him the first time, did you say, this guy is just off the hook? I mean, what happened? Yeah, that, that was my, my initial impression. Even though uh, I'm actually the only the only musician who's, who who got to play with Randy in both the Choir Riot version, you know, the way he was playing locally, and then when he joined Ozzy, so I I actually witnessed the metamorphosis of Randy, uh, and it was just amazing because what happened was while we were in L.A., we, we were like chasing our tails trying to get a record deal. And when I joined Choir Riot, already, you know, it was at that at that cusp where Van Halen was the last rock band, you know, heavy metal rock band to get signed out of the L.A. area. After that, they shut the doors. You know, the labels did. And they started looking for bands like The Knack and The Motels, you know, punk, right. new wave, you know, stuff like that. Because that's what was happening. That's what the radio was playing, you know. And uh, so we kind of like... You know, and at that time, you know, you have you have bands that were uh, bands like London, who later became Motley Crue. You had Rad, you had Dokken, you had Great White. Basically, the same bands that made it in the eighties. We were still, around, you know, we were around in the late seventies in L.A. trying to make it. You know, and uh, so that's when Randy got the uh, the gig with Ozzy, and as soon as he joined Ozzy, Ozzy told Ozzy told him, "Listen, just be yourself." Just, you know, write what, what, what's you, be true to yourself, and just, and just, you know, whatever comes out, write that, and, and we'll make, you know, we'll make some music, you know, so that gave Randy complete freedom, 
to really break away from trying to please the record companies because Ozzy already had a record deal. So all they have to do is put some awesome songs together, which of course they did, you know, with Blizzard of Oz and and uh, and Diary of a Madman, you know. So the the Randy that the world knows, you know, the people outside of L.A. growing up in that uh, era, uh, basically have, uh, you know. Diary of a Madman and Blizzard of Oz as a reference. Of course, you know, there, there's some recordings available on, on YouTube, but to actually witness Randy playing live, even though there's some video from, you know, the Whiskey and the Starwood, but to be watching him playing live at the Starwood during with Quiet Riot is completely different from watching him playing, playing with Ozzy. And that was just within maybe two years. Okay. One from the other, you know. So, I mean, it was a fast asked uh growing up musically for for randy you know and also going to england he he was surrounded by musicians who had uh more uh, more of a pure classical connection than what he could find in los angeles you know you he would he would go to classical teachers in, in england people who had studied under the masters you know so the information that was that he was getting was first first and second generation you know classical instruction now you know? now you play with him in quiet right now how did you end up playing with ozzy oh because randy uh randy recommended me you know they it, when when i joined the band uh they had they had already recorded blizzard of oz and diary of a madman was in the can waiting to be released so Tommy Aldridge replaced Lee Kerslake and the and the uh, the drummer who who recorded on those on those two albums, and then they were look, looking for a bass player, and you know they needed somebody really quick, and somebody that they could trust. So Randy already knew my ethics, you know, work ethics, and he knew that. I was not going to join the band and all of a sudden, you know, be, you know, go out there, start, you know, drinking, taking drugs, and becoming a liability, and and also that I could play the music. So he recommended me, and and they trusted uh, Sharon Ozzy trusted Randy's word that I was going to be the right guy because that's what they needed. They needed somebody to go there quickly and do it and not be a liability on the road. And that's how I got the gig. Now, what's that like? I mean, you're going from, you know, you're playing bars, you're on the, on the, the, you know, the strip trying to get stuff happen. Then all of a sudden you're playing with a big act. I mean, did you, like, what was it like just to sit there? I mean, it's like overnight, you know, your, your crowd, your crowd base changes. As, as a performer, what do you go through? I mean, those, first, those big nights of the big concert halls, are, are you, are you nervous at first or you just can't wait to get out there? Well, it was definitely a celebration. I, I, I remember every single night that Randy and I would look at each other from behind the uh, the amplifier stacks and kind of like, you know, like look at each other and smile and give us, you know, the thumbs up like, wow, this is the coolest thing ever, you know, because it was, you know, every night was the Super Bowl with us. You know, there was not, that band at its worst was great. Okay. You know, and 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 I would say ninety nine percent of the night uh, of, of the of the shows were, were magic. You know, so and it's not because you know I was involved. No, it's just because Randy and Ozzy and Tommy. You know, they were they were incredible musicians. I was just the guy fill you know filling in there. You know, 
keeping up with everybody basically you know you know but but i but i one of the things that really really helped me i would say 90 percent what it really helped me to to actually what you just brought up you know how to keep everything in focus and not, and not let it overwhelm me was uh, the fact that i had a spiritual center by the time that i got the opportunity to uh, to audition you know I I understood where the that gift was coming from, you know. So I I I understood I, I understood the blessing that it was to actually be in that band and did not abuse it. Okay, so so yeah, so you basically you 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 were grown up about it, <laughs> you know. You no said, you no, said, I've seen a, I've seen a lot of grown ups that that are are that just uh, take things for granted and abuse, you know, many things. So I wasn't, I wasn't grown up. I, uh, I, 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 you know, I, I thank God and I, I found a spiritual path that I follow even to today that I didn't have right before I got a phone call to audition when I had a basically spiritual and uh, so, you know, since you asked me about that, I'm giving you the, the truth. Okay, cool. You there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Okay. So now, 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 what was it like, though, touring? I mean, you know, a big tour, what is it like? Is it, I mean, because you're going from city to city, but you're going in, in a nice, in first class. I mean, you know, you're going, what is that like? I mean, would, did it just make it really, like, just a complete difference from when you were on the road, as you said, in Chicago, Milwaukee, and Iowa. It must have been night and day. Well, this is, okay, so my first impression, you know, we were on the road with Ozzy. And, you know, there was, there, there was a budget for the tour because uh, they was, there was not enough of a tour support from the, from the, from the label, from, uh, from Epic, who was the, uh, the distributor of, of the record. Even though it was on Jet Records, uh, so there was a you know there was a lot of financial risks that were taken by by Sh- uh, Sharon's family, you know Don Arden, who actually owned Jet Records and was the manager for Ozzy and so on. They really believed in Ozzy, they really did. So, but then again, you know there were some budgetary constraints because it was the first tour, um, the first solo tour for for Ozzy. So you know promoters were not. Make, giving huge guarantees, so you know we were we were on. Uh, everybody was in one tour of us, which was wonderful. You get to know everybody, and we were staying in, in you know in decent you know Holiday Inn hotels, you know. And then with time, as the band proved itself, you know we started we started having a little bit more improved uh, accommodations. But you know it really didn't matter to, to personally. And I would say to everybody in, in the band, it was all about getting up on stage and just like doing, you know, being in that magnificent band, playing those unbelievable songs every single night. How we got there, as long as it was, it was comfortable and we were comfortable, that's, you know, that's all that really mattered. So you're playing with them and now after Randy's death, is that when you decided to leave the band? Is that how you went back to Quiet Riot? Yeah, I mean, after Randy 
passed away, you know, it, it left a huge hole in that band, you know, major, major. So uh, I, I, I lost my joy of playing music because uh, basically I was just surviving every single show every, every night, you know, just playing notes. I was in, I was, in, I, I, my heart was broken, so I couldn't really put my heart into it. I had no heart left, you know. So I, I had to find a way to get joy back into my playing. And I, so basically I left one of the biggest bands in the world for the complete unknown, which was, you know, playing with, uh, with Kevin and Frankie and Carlos Cavazzo, you know, and, and, and going out and, you know, with the metal health version of the band. Now you start playing and, and about what was the sunset strip like at that time? Was it at the full level or was it getting to the level? I mean, cause you said before the bands after Van Halen weren't getting signed. When did the whole start to change where bands like Quiet Riot and Poison and Motley Crue were starting to get signed? Was it that time when you would join back with Quiet Riot? No. I tell you, when I joined the Metal Health version of the band, still well, the type of music that we were doing was considered dinosaur music. Okay. You know, uh, you know I was in my, you know, I was still young, and and you know and the people that I was playing with were we were still young but we were considered like uh, you know you guys are older you know uh, with the music industry so basically we uh, Quiet Riot took the only deal in town that was Spencer Proffer from uh, who was the, uh, the he owned Pasha Records and you know and he produced the album and but and, I, and, and you know basically what what he had in mind was if to find a band. With a singer that could sing, come on, feel the noise. <laughs> you know, that was his vision. Okay. And, and, and he was right, because that was the hit from the record. You know, when I left Ozzy and rejoined Quiet Riot, or joined the Quiet Riot version, uh, the Metal Health version of Quiet Riot, uh, 1982, going into 83, still, it was gloom and doom for the type of bands like us, you know, you have somebody like maybe like, uh, you know, Vandenberg, the group Vandenberg playing at the Roxy. And of course they, they, they were signed to a European deal. But as far as the local bands, we were, we were not getting signed yet. Well, we, we were like the only one, right? As a matter of fact, we had the metal health record finished, done in the can waiting for, with a release date of March, uh, and we couldn't even get a manager interested. We're just handing them what will become in November a number one album. Right. And nobody was interested because, you know, they didn't get it. And if it wasn't for MTV, I we won't be having this conversation because it was definitely MTV that broke Quiet Riot. It wasn't really as much radio as it was actually MTV that did it. Well, you know, it's funny. I was, I was the 35th anniversary of MTV uh, last week, I believe. And, and you're right. I mean, you know, for me, I mean, the videos, that was that we love. That's what turned us on to all this new music. How did you get the video done before you really started getting music play? Uh, well, the first video that we did was Bang Your Head. That cost like ten grand, and the uh, and the label uh, 
fronted. Of course, you know, once we make money, that we 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 pay for that. The band pays for all the videos. You know, it's it's totally recoupable unless you have some kind of an amazing record deal that is non-recoupable. But that's not the deal that Quiet Riot had. So uh, we recorded that and we gave it to MTV, and you know, they played it a bit. You know, it helped. Uh, then we started doing these shows. One of them was called Friday Nights, and it was us playing live at Perkins Palace in uh, I think it's Glendale out okay. there. Yeah, and and it, it since we were a local band, the 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 choir the original Choir Riot fan club just came in and just took over the place. So we had banners everywhere. We we looked like headliners. Okay. You know, like a major headlining act. So we actually, as much as MTV helped us, that show really initially was what opened the doors to Quiet Riot because it was an, a, a national, a national broadcast on on network TV. Whereas MTV, it was still available only in pockets of the country, and something that is on ABC Friday nights uh, rock show that w- that went everywhere. So we started after the album was released in March. We went on a on on tour with Scorpions. Uh, they were warming up to play the US Festival. Remember the US Festival in nineteen eighty three? Okay. So so by the time that we got to the last show that that we did with them in Denver, they were uh, the promoter Barry Fay, who was booking the US Festival was looking for a band to replace Joe Walsh because Joe Walsh was moved from the metal day to the the date uh, to the following day that had David Bowie and Stevie Nicks and all that. He uh, you know they thought it was a better fit. So uh, Barry Faye saw us opening up for Scorpions and said, Hey, do you guys wanna wanna come in and do this gig at, at the US Festivals? And we say, sure, of course. So we were, you know, and, and they had us they, they gave us the option of either opening the show or, or, or going second after Motley Crue, and we, and we said no, no, we, we want to open the show, so we did, and and that helped immensely, immensely to you know to create a buzz about Quiet Riot. Then after that, we went on tour with with ZZ Top, and that's when that that, that Friday nights that I'm telling you about really started kicking in. Then after that, we went on tour with Loverboy. And then Loverboy did not pick up the uh, the second leg of us opening up for them on the second leg of the tour. So we went on our own headlining with with uh, Queensryche. Uh, they had just had their EP Queen of the Reich released. So then after that, we joined the Iron Maiden tour, followed by Black Sabbath. By the time we we hit Black Sabbath, that was November of '83, and that's when we went to number one. But right before Maiden, that's when the Come and Feel the Noise video, June or July of 83, started hitting MTV. And that's what really broke the band while we were touring with Iron Maiden. I remember going, uh, play, uh, opening up for Maiden at the at Madison Square Garden. And our album, Metal Health, and the single, it was number one in the city. And with the number one video on MTV, it was amazing. I mean, I, I had never been to New York at a time, in New York City, at the time where I could actually walk down the street and people knew me. Right. <laughs> they would yell my name, you know, guys in cabs, you know, cab drivers or whatever, hey, Quiet Riot, Rudy, whatever, you know. It was like, wow, this is really amazing. 
You know, that that's the power of MTV. It was just phenomenal, you know. Yeah, because that video was huge. I mean, as I, I always sit through, you know, and, and, and that song. I mean, you know, if, if I say, you know, if you're over 35 and you don't know that song, you know, you're someone I'm not going to want to hang out with. You know what I mean? It's like there's certain songs that everybody knows. So to be a part of that must just be insane when you look back. It was really insane. It was really insane. But, you know, what was really interesting, it was like uh, I I already been through that climb up the mountain with, with Ozzy. Because, you know, when Ozzy started out, you know, when we went out for the Blizzard of Oz, you know, it was it was it was it was a build it was a fast build but nevertheless it was a build you know so here i go again with quiet raya going up that same mountain you know going to the top and the landscape looks exactly the same you know that that if you if if, if you're on tour with a brand new band and you start seeing certain things develop along the way you know that what your final destination if you keep going at that at, at, at that at that speed or if things progress in the, you know with the same path if, if you follow the same path you you're going to reach the top so you so know. you go you go from Ozzy and you, you ascend it as you said then you go with quiet right and you ascend and you guys are up top now now what made you decide to leave that band uh, conflicts personal conflicts you know things that that you know, I I was not I didn't have the right tools at that time in my life to actually deal with certain things. Okay. And I don't think any 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 uh, anybody in the band or outside of the band, not even management, had the tools to deal with those things. You know, and uh, so it became a situation that was best for everybody for me to move on. So now, what do you decide? I mean, when you move on and you've had two, you know, you've been with two great bands, which is more than most musicians can ever say in their life. Where do you find yourself mentally when you're sitting there? I know you you went on and you started the band with uh, Tommy Aldridge. How did that happen? Well, Tommy and I, of course, you know, we we had played together in, in Aussie, so it was basically you know a combination of, of like people that you trust. You know, to embark on a new on a new journey. You know, uh, you always take people that you enjoy being in their company and people that, that you trust that are going to have certain ethics. You know, uh, work ethics and and everything. You know, they're, they're not going to be a detriment to the collective vision of what of what you're uh, creating. You know, so Tommy, of course, you know, being the, the premier rock drummer that he is, you know, it was always. Always, not only a pleasure, but you know, to go, to go on stage with Tommy. I, I don't have to worry about anything. I just have to worry about myself. You know, being the best I can be. You know, so it's a, you know, you know, people to play with people like that. It's it's like the ultimate experience. Now, now, what's the relationship with the bassists and drummers? Because I always I always look back to when I used to watch the Rolling Stone videos and Charlie Watts and uh, Bill Wyman would always just be like just grooving on each other is that what it's like do you guys like does a drummer and the bassist have a, have a big camaraderie in the band like you guys because you guys are the backbone of the band i mean do you guys when you walk in sit there and know that you're going to be leading off each other well you know i i, I consider the uh, the drummer to be the conductor he's you know he's, he's holding the sticks the batons he just happened to be beating on things with it you know but it, but it's essentially the same thing you have to build the rhythm section from the bottom up and the plat to me, the foundation of any rhythm section is 
the drummer. And when I say rhythm section, I'm including the guitars. Because it, even, even if you're Eddie Van Halen, you're only going to be playing a solo for like eight, 16 measures of the song. The rest of the song, you're going to be playing rhythm guitar. And you better be locking in with the drummer too. You know, so me as the bass player, the guy who's in between the rhythm melody, you know, I'm very conscientious of what everybody's playing melodically and rhythmically, you know. And to me, given given the the option of either running around the stage or just standing by a drummer and grooving, I'd rather go for that. You know, always have. I, I only move around the stage out of necessity. Okay. <laughs> And boredom sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so after you're playing with all these great bands, then you end up with White Snake. I mean, did you get invited to White Snake? How did that happen? Because once again, you're with another great band. I mean, you're sitting there, you're yeah. jumping from these great bands. Did, I mean, you must have had a very good reputation. And so, did they just contact you? Because I know it was that. Again, was... again, you know, through through your through your work, you build a trust, you know, factor. Uh, I mean, I can I can give you names of many many musicians who are on call all the time because people trust them to do what they're called in for, you know, and to deliver, you know, and and these are people that but you you can't do that overnight, you know. Once in a while, I'll run into like a new musician that's just come into town and they're trying to break into the scene, and I go, well, listen. My advice is to build your trust factor. You can't break into the scene. I mean, you might, you you might, you know, there might be a fluke. But if you really want to sustain your career, you have to build your trust factor. You know, you have to start working at the bottom and build your way to the top and be solid all the way through. You know, have great work ethics. You know, stay away from drugs and alcohol. Anything that would be detrimental to your to your musical skills and your and your social skills. You know, stay away from that. And just build a strong foundation, not only as a player but as a as somebody that will be a team player. Now, now you're a team player. You got the good reputation. But when you go to play with a band like White Snake, do you have to learn their whole catalog? I mean, because you know. They're, they've been around for a while. Like when you go to a new band, I know you play with Blue Oyster Cult, who my friend Mark Esposito saw you play with, and they're his favorite band ever. When you go to these bands, do do you sit there and do you have to basically learn every song? Because if they sit there in concert and they go, "Hey, we're going to play this," or do you have to learn a limited amount of songs? How do you approach it as a professional? Well, uh, with White Snake, we we would learn the set. You know, it was kind of like predetermined. You know, these are the songs that we're going to do on this tour. Once in a while, we throw in something, you know, but it was very rare. Uh, because it's two, two different environments. When you're, uh, when, when I toured with Snake, it was a major production, lights and sound and staging and all of that. So, which means is that I, I, I don't know if your listeners are really aware of this, but most of the lighting is computerized nowadays. Uh, everything from song to song. So it's very rare, very rare that a show that you watch today in Milwaukee will be different, completely different from the one you see in, in, in Minneapolis the following day. Because there's a certain programming that goes with 
the production of it. You know, I'm sure that there's bands out there that have gotten around us and they're ready for that and they make certain accommodations, you know, but that was not the case that we had in Whitesnake. Whitesnake is, it was, it was uh, pretty much sequenced, you know, what the set list was going to be. Whereas when I, when I toured with Blue Oyster Cult, we didn't have that type of production. You know, we weren't carrying our own lights and sound and backline or anything, you know. So there was more freedom to actually, you know, change the set. As a matter of fact, we would, we, we, we would not know what songs we were going to play until Eric Bloom would make the set list five minutes before we go on. Okay. That was, that, that was tradition, you know. And I had to learn about 50 songs from their catalog. And they're all jams, you know, every single song, you know. And there would be one, once in a while, somebody from the audience would yell out a song, and Eric would turn to the band and say, yeah, we're doing that. And you better, and you better know it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, as a musician, what do you like better? Do you like the spontaneity of that? Or do you like when you know what you're going to do? Like with Whitesnake, you know your set. Does that get a little tiresome or sometimes? Or does a little spontaneity really kick in for you as a musician viewpoint? Yeah, well, you know, in a situation like, like Whitesnake, it was, uh, you know, you're, you're basically, you're trying to recreate the master that you did the, the, the night before. And what really made it different was the crowd. Because you're playing to, uh, in a different arena or stadium, whatever you have to be playing at, environment. And there's a whole different dashboard in front of you, you know, so you play of that, you know, there's a whole different landscape, you know, so you feed from that, the energy, you know, it, it's, 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 it's very, uh, it, it's, 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 it's the crowd and the band at its best. We're, we're one rather than us being, a separation. There's no separation between the band and the crowd. Or there should not be. You know, it's very interactive. You know, you have the crowd reacting to the band, and the band reacting to the crowd. You know, and whereas with with Blue Oyster Cult, it was more intimate settings, and uh, I also enjoy that because you know there's certain intimacy and certain things sonically that you can actually feed from easier than to be in a really huge production, you know, that you, you have to rely and monitor system. I mean, nowadays in a situation like that, I would wear in-ears, you know, and, and, and to correct that. But, but back in the day, we didn't have that technology yet. Now you're playing all these years and then you wrote a book. How did you come to write that book? You wrote uh, Off the Rails? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. As a matter of fact, it's it's available on Kindle now. It's uh, it's off uh, a, it's off print. It's uh, it's uh, on Kindle, and actually, it's it's the number one. Uh, it's been number one for like thirteen weeks in the metal uh, genre on Kindle. So I'm very 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 happy about that. Mostly because you know I get to share my memories of Randy, which is the only reason why I, I wrote the book. Uh, there were so many conspiracy theories about surrounding Randy's uh, death 
10 years ago or 12 years ago when I actually started working on the rec on, on you know writing the book that what I really wanted to do is to clear give a defined clear picture of the series of events that led to 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 the crash you know and uh, so and all with one focus one goal is to answer was to answer what it was it like to play with Randy Rhodes which is the number one question I get asked when I travel around the world. So that that's that's why I wrote the book, you know. Well, that must be great when you look and you see it's number one and it's a tribute to your friend. I mean, that must just be a great feeling for you just I know, internally. I know, I know, because, uh, you know, it's there's there's a new generation of musicians coming out. I mean, uh, you know, you just go to YouTube and you see all these wonderful young players. And the reason why is because you know, I mean, music, music really, it's, it's you know, it, it's, it's enjoyed by everybody. It, it transcends religion, spirituality, uh, ethnicity, cultural, it's everything. It's music. Music is, is the most wonderful uh, gift that we have on this planet, you know. And young people really get it. They really do. They, they gravitate to it so fast. And right now, there's so many resources available, uh, educational resources available online, that I even take advantage of them on a daily basis, you know, to improve my musical skills. So I can, I can just imagine, you know, young people that are really, they absorb things so, so much easier than somebody my age nowadays. You know, I got to work out a little bit more because, because of my, my database Right, so my brain is full, man. <laughs> I, I, I know the feeling. I know you sit there and go, you "Wait know, a second, how'd you figure that out?" I'll look at the computer. I'll go, "Huh, yeah. huh?" So I was like, "Look, you do this." I'm like, "Huh?" So, yeah. so now you also you you, all, you you put together some of these super groups sometimes. Like you were in, on tour with Gunzo, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, Tracy Guns and me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, how does yeah. that happen? Do you just sit there and go, it's "Hey, I, really, I wanna... it's not really a super group. It's just Tracy and I having fun going out there and playing." You know. So how does it happen? You just sit there and you go, hey, let's just throw a tour together. I mean, that must be cool to sit there, you know, you get a buddy and then you just sit there and then you, and you know, people will come see you. That must be a great feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, sometimes you just, it's, it's kind of like, uh, cleansing your palate, you know, individually, he and I, you know, we wanted to do certain things that we had not had the opportunity to do before in our with certain bands that we've been in, so which is we we picked material accordingly to that, you know, stuff that we really want to play, not stuff that we have to play. Now you also now you're very involved with uh, pets, right? Well, the way I look, I look at it is, I, I, I anytime that I have an opportunity to create to raise awareness of shelter animals that that are available for rescue, uh, you know, pets. Whether they're kittens or, or, or puppies or or even ducks, whatever you know, uh, yeah, and and it's very simple. I and and I and I, ho I I hope that more people get to do it. I mean, you just anytime you get that sort of information through your timeline on Facebook or Twitter, just share it, share it because there's going to be somebody out there who's who's looking, you know, to to save a life or have their life saved by by one of these uh, wonderful creatures. Now you've been playing bass for all these years, and then I, I did a little reading. You're also you're a, you're a, a, an animator. Is that true? 
Yeah, yeah. But I a very mean, good yeah. one. A very good one, I've heard. Well, well, this is what happened. You know, I, I <laughs> it just came out of creative necessity. Uh, I started uh, losing my the clarity of my vision. You know, with with age, and it got to a point that it was very hard for me to play like let's say a five string bass on stage and you know as soon as the spotlight would hit me i would look down and, and my strings would be like this big blob of, of chrome or metal you know so i started again to lose joy in my playing because i couldn't actually i couldn't really see what i was doing whereas for me to sit in front of my laptop with my glasses on was no problem Okay. So I started gravitating creatively more towards that. And then one day I made a career decision, which was to get Lasix. And I got monovision, which is one eye for reading and one eye for driving. And it changed my life completely. I mean, if, you know, like, like as, as it was being done on me, the process, I could see clearly, you know, everything was getting more in focus. It was, it was really freaky. And now I, I I enjoy playing so much again that I really really spend most of the time just just with my bass on me and making music and having fun. Now now you also you you're I know just I think it was it last weekend you did the uh, the uh, was it School of Rock or what's that because that looks cool Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. Yeah, it's actually Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. It's not really School of Rock because it's completely different. It's a uh, I mean, it's a whole different experience. I mean, last last uh, last camp we had Judas Priest as our special guest. I mean, you don't get that on any school of rock. Dude. Right. That, this is <laughs> this is a rock and roll fantasy camp, you know, exclusive. And but but sometimes I do get younger musicians, like uh, for example, my my band, which is not the norm. But I had a, on this camp, I had a thirteen year old drummer, great drummer. And two guitar players, fifteen and sixteen, and then I had a uh, a great singer from uh, from Bulgaria, who, who has been in the country for a few years, and but he does a great ACDC, you know Bon Scott. Okay, he does a great Bon Scott. So you know it was it was really a great camp because you know we had some really highly skilled uh, musicians joining me at the camp, and uh, and they all all of them, including myself, got to play with the guys from Judas Priest. So that must be fun. And then, so, what are these? Do they, what is the camp? In, like, what do, do people come and do they just jam with you guys, or do you give them insight, or how's it work? Yeah, it's not really a jam because what you 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 know, as soon as uh, about a week or two weeks before the camp, you start communicating with your campers and you start reassessing, you know, what their skill level is and what their their wish list of songs and things to accomplish at the campus. So, you, before you even meet. You know, you start putting together a program for, let's say, for example, Judas Priest camp. We we were given a list of songs that Judas Priest wanted to perform with the campers. So for, so our band, you know, we picked about three or four. So we jam on those, and we know, you know, as you as as you're playing them with with you know, for the first time with the campers, you know which ones are going to be the strongest songs. You know, it's easy. You know, which one sounds the best, uh, the, you know, due to the skill level of the musicians. So you stick with those and then you build on that. Then you start asking each guy in the, each guy in the band. So, you know, at home, 
with your own band or your friends, what songs do you play? So you start building like an alternate list it's because we not only do we perform with the special guests at the camp, but also we perform with them, uh, you know, with our band by itself, let's say our Lucky Strike in Hollywood. Right. So we do like three songs without Judas Priest. And then on Sunday night, uh, the following night, we play with Judas Priest, one song on stage at the Whiskey, you know, with a whole band, except for Glenn Tipton, <laughs> you know, Rob Halford, you know, everybody, Scott, you know, Richie and, and Ian, you know. And as a matter of fact, I, I wasn't going to play bass because Ian Hill was playing bass. And I thought, man, this is so much freaking fun. I'm, I'm going to stay up there on, <laughs> on stage and just turn down a little bit and let Ian be like the main, you know, the main uh, bass. But I'm, but I'm not getting off the stage. This is too cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that. <laughs> now, how often do you do these? The fantasy I'm sorry? How often do you do the fantasy camps? Oh, yeah. I, I've been doing that for eight years. And, you know, it's, 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 it's the best way to give back to not only the people that have been supporting, you know, all of us, all of us musicians, you know, uh, the fans, you know, because, you know, mo most of the people that attend the camp, well, I would say they're, they're not professional musicians. Actually, they're, they're either doctors, lawyers, you know. Uh, people from all walks of life, and we, we had, you know, members of the military, uh, you name it, you know, and, or, or, like I just mentioned, you know, we have uh, uh, kids, you know, teenagers that attend, too, so it, it's a way for me to share things that I've learned with them, kind of like take them by the hand through my, through my own personal journey that I've been through, and also, you know, a way to say thank you for your support all these years, you know, to the people who are who are not teenagers. You know? Right. Well, you know what? Uh, the hour's almost up. I really want to thank you for coming on. This was great because I'm, I'm, I'm a big music guy, and I love when I get musicians on. And I know I, tra I had Tracy on a few weeks ago. And uh, now how can people follow you? Do they follow you on Twitter? Give your Twitter information and give all that stuff. Yeah, it's just Rudy Sars on Twitter. And then on Facebook is uh, official Rudy Sar. So it's it's whenever you see my my uh, my my page and I have my uh, my my little dog with me, that's that does my page. All right. Well, well, cool. Well, people, so people follow him. Go check out the music. You know, you gotta love music. Go go tonight. Go listen to some Quiet Riot. I do it all the time on weekends. You know, I'll sit here and if, if Joanne's working, you know, if she's on set, I'll be at my computer. I always go to YouTube and I always think, what song am I moving for? And Quiet Riot always pops up in there. And that's just all of them. So people, you got to go. So go follow them. It's Rudy Sarzo. It's S-A-R-Z-O. So go follow him on Twitter. Just check him out. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Uh, also, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have... God, I have 545 episodes up there, and I constantly post new ones. Uh, you can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Tell me what guests you want to get, what, what, who you want to get. I can try. I had a guy a few weeks ago who said I should get Keith Powell, who's on 30 Rock. And what happened? I got Keith Powell. Also, uh, don't forget uh, iTunes and Stitcher, Cooper Talk One Word. Instagram, Cooper Talk One. Words with Friends, Cooper Talk One, which I will play you. And my other website, Dear to My Heart, no lie, stopthesalt.com. Remember when I had that heart problem a few years ago? I got out, I wrote a 120-page uh, cookbook. It's 120 recipes, easy to make. No pictures to intimidate you. 
no long list of ingredients. If you don't have cumin, don't worry. You don't need cumin. So go get that. Go to StopTheSalt.com. Buy it there. You can buy it at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. But if you buy it from StopTheSalt.com, I will sign it and I make more money. And that's what it's all about. So people, go follow Rudy Sarzo. Check out his, his music. Check out the bands. Check out rock because, you know, it's his music which keeps us going. So once again, StopTheSalt.com at CooperTalk. Cooper, coopertalk.net. And remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.